Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. This week features a two-part interview with Daniel Ash and David Jay, lyricists and songwriters behind Love and Rockets, Bauhaus, and multiple other bands and solo projects. I interviewed Daniel and David separately with a similar set of questions. The success of their projects can be attributed in part to their distinctly different approaches to writing lyrics and crafting songs. Today's episode features Daniel Ash with David Jay's interview coming later this week. I spoke with Daniel and David while they were preparing for Love and Rocket's first U.S. tour in 15 years. Named after the underground comic by the Hernandez brothers, Love and Rockets announced themselves to the world with their radically unique take on the classic Temptation song, Ball of Confusion. This debut proved that they were going to be a force to contend with. It became a huge seller and a popular club hit in the U.S. and Canada, where it also went gold. It marked the beginning of a career that would span an impressive 14 years and seven albums. The legacy of the band has only grown with more people realizing the extent of their influence and generations of new fans discovering them. The list of artists who cite their influence is impressive. The Flaming Lips, The Dandy Warhols, A Place to Bury Strangers, Jane's Addiction, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, Beck, Maynard Keenan, Dubfire, The Pixies, and many more. And as a bonus, Daniel agreed to share lyrics from an upcoming project, Ashes and Diamonds. So Daniel, in a 1991 MTV interview, you mentioned when discussing a solo project at the time that writing lyrics is challenging compared to the music. I suspect many musicians can relate to that challenge. Given your extraordinary portfolio of songs created for multiple bands and solo projects, has writing lyrics become easier over time? And what advice do you have for songwriters, maybe that lyrics don't come naturally to them? If anything, it's a bit easier now because there's something I have been using way back to the Tones on Pale days and actually Bauhaus. Yeah, thinking about it, like Slice of Life and stuff. I've used, I sort of stumbled across it by accident, but then I found out later that uh, David Bowie's used this and it, it comes from the William Burroughs idea, the cut-up thing. And I, I've, I've basically used that forever uh, from way back. Uh, although at first, as I said, with the very first things with, with Slice of Life, I remember I got that from a fanzine, that title, way back uh, in New York. And I started cutting up those, you know, headlines as such. I've been doing that ever since. And, and what I find is it really completely sets you free. It mm -hmm. frees you up because you can, um, to me, it's all going on in the subconscious a lot of the time, uh, all the time. And so when you actually start the cut-up thing, and I, I, more than anything, I like using the National Enquirer mm. because they have the best headlines. They're always super dramatic and you can get some real juicy ones. So I've used that. And then I used to use, which is hilarious, I used to use... Um, in the Turns on Tail days, I would use Viz magazine, which is like, um, I don't know if you know about Viz. It's it's very funny. I don't know if it is so funny anymore. I don't even <laughs> know if it's still going. But um, it's a cartoon magazine, and there's a lot of real crude stuff in there, and it's 
very English and it's taken the piss out of everybody, different characters that you get in society. Anyway, I would use in England, I would use the viz. And then since I've been over here, I would use most of the time, you know, I use sometimes things like People magazine, all those magazines that you get uh, in the supermarket. I would often just buy half a dozen of those and then just take a moment and cut them up, put them on the kitchen table. And then you would get something like a headline that would spark a whole song. It yeah. would either be a headline from one of these magazines or a guitar riff, you know, two or three chords put together that would turn me on in order to start the process to spark it all off, if you like. So, uh, you know, and I, I'm, I'm doing this thing now with a band called Ashes and Diamonds, and it's like I think 99% of it was using uh, the National Enquirer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it got some real juicy headlines to get. So, you know, in essence... It completely frees me up. You're not so self-conscious. You're not like, what am I, you know, it, it, it takes you to places that consciously you wouldn't even think about. And then after, you know, if it doesn't happen within half an hour, then it's not going to happen. Then yeah. I, I tend to scrap it. But usually it, it starts firing off once you have at least 20, 30 headlines all there on the table, then you start getting sentences it's exactly like when you get those magnets that are on that people put on there <laughs> yes <laughs> they get all the words i i tried using those at one point but i found those limiting and I, I wasn't getting the sensational headlines that i was getting in the national Enquirer. so anyway that's what i've uh, you know tacky magazines is where i get it from you know most most of the time I love that idea, and it's uh, in the poetry world, found poetry is definitely very much a real thing, and I created a, a poem out of, uh, I transcribed Bjork, uh, you may have seen this video of her describing a television, and it's very surreal and poetic in a very Bjorky way, and it was just, it, it was almost as if she had written a poem in, uh, subconsciously, and it was just screaming out to be turned into that, yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't seen that, but um, knowing her, it's probably very interesting. Very interesting, very bizarre, and very Bjorky, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Well, Daniel, in an American dream from the Love and Rockets album Express, you created lyrics that are inseparable from the music you wrote. Are you confused by the chaos in everyone's wandering eyes? Do you dream of running naked in warm rain? Are you confused by the chaos? It's no, it's no surprise. We all stand next to Jesus, close to Satan. We're both the same. Reading those lines right now, it's impossible for me not to hear the music. I'm transported every time I hear though. This, that, that particular song in a similar way that Led, Led Zeppelin's song, The Battle of Evermore, uh, transports me. When writing le lyrics and in, in especially using the techniques you just described, are you already crafting the music or does the music come first and drive the lyrics or a combination of both? And I'm sure it depends. It, it's a combination of both. It's either a guitar riff or a headline will spark an idea. And also with this, you see, it's tapping into your subconscious because the headline will be attractive to the individual because subconsciously it's on their mind. It's in their vocabulary at that time. It's like there's a reason why you would be drawn towards, you know, like I'll see a bunch of headlines and they don't mean anything and I won't even cut them out of the magazine. Whereas another one will excite me. So that's where it takes care of itself. And again, it, it's a, a real catalyst to get the ball rolling and it takes it away from you and it takes it away from being self-conscious as well because it's so i find it really tough 
I used to have to drink a bottle or two of wine in order to loosen myself up to get rid of the intellect to uh, to to actually get tunnel vision and 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 obviously when you drink uh, uh, your emotions come forward mm-hmm. so that is what I wanted so when I'm stone cold sober uh, I'm much too uh, uh, over analytical about everything think too much and as you're writing when you're totally sober without this um, without the cut up idea as support. You're worry. I'm worrying about each line. Is it any good as I'm doing it? And it just gets. You just hit a brick wall. I hit a brick wall real quickly. Completely frees you up. It's like you know, if you overwork dough, you're not going to end up with good bread. And the same thing no, applies to poetry. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm a huge believer in the great, and I've read this as well. That the great ideas, the pure ideas, the fastest, the most successful songs, ninety percent of the time are the ones that happen super quickly. And we, we, we've got examples of that with Bella Lugosi's Dead, with Go from Tones on Tail, with So Alive. They were written in a day. Yeah. Boom, real quick. And it's to me, it's when the intellect is not even there. It's, a, it's like automatic writing. It's something that comes out where, before you have the chance to start worrying about it and overthinking it. The intellect, for me, I think, really gets in the way. And I, uh, I am not... I, pisses me off actually the our intellects and where get because it becomes how clever can i be rather than this is a great thing happening and and when you it's like again it goes with the uh the idea of the happy accidents you know when you're actually writing the music and you do the wrong chord you go hold on if you're open to this it's great because the wrong chord will be better than the one you were going to use that again if you're open to that you'll get something a lot more substantial than if you just work with your stupid intellect you know it to me it's dumb because it's just trying to be clever it's an ego driven thing whereas this automatic writing or using the cut-up idea you're freed from that and you can basically have fun with it and it flows so that's just that's my experience so you know i resent the intellect coming in because us humans overthink i overthink all the time about most things it's why I like to ride motorcycles, for example, because it gets you away from all these cluster of thoughts and you have to focus on what, what you're doing when you're riding. Yeah, when a song or a poem falls out of you, the audience can even tell. It's just, uh, it's not encumbered. It's just there. Yeah, it flows. It's, uh, what people say it's, you're like an antenna for this stuff. But then I saw this interview with uh, Sinead O'Connor the other week and she said well i'll i'll say rather than it's you being an antenna you're being an antenna for yourself what's actually inside of you not an outside force but the antenna is you you're your own antenna if that makes sense yeah absolutely you know, uh, on a personal level but it's a matter of how you tap into that i don't know it'd be intriguing to know other people's ways of of how they come up with this stuff but i i just found that the the cut up i think the uh, idea works so well for me I think I think that if I remember correctly, William Burroughs came across it by accident, didn't he? Cut some of his own text up um, accidentally, and then it fell right. into certain Yes, and <laughs> I, I seem to remember reading that. And then there it is, and then it's magic. You've got this instead of just normal writing, you've got this extraordinary writing. It's a, it's a wonderful tool. Yeah. 
Well, what do you learn from how audiences respond to the lyrics of your songs? And I'm thinking about those moments when the crowd sings in unison, knowing every word by heart. And how does that feed? How in general does the feedback loop of the audience affect your writing? I know for stand-up comics, they work they work things for a year before they really figure it out, and they need audiences to be part of the feedback loop. How does that apply in your case? It, it doesn't apply because with with us, I mean, we'll have written the song before we get to an audience, so it's already written. It's always already written in stone. Mm-hmm. Just take it out there and there it is. You know, we with Love and Rockets, with Bowers, with any band, we used to just all be in a room together, the three or the four of us, depending on the band. And we would work, you know, with Love and Rockets, it would be a case where David or myself would come to this with with the song, in essence, on a guitar, the lyric and the, and the riff. And then we present it to the band and then we'd all work it out from that point. I would think most people work like that. You know, but you'd have to have a, you have to have a lyric there ready to go. Otherwise, you're just jamming. And yeah. it doesn't, you, I personally have to have a lyric ready to go, uh, and a, usually a, a melody line, a, a vocal melody to go with the guitar bit, and then you take it from there. But there, you can't once it's done. There's no testing it. The audience will make a decision if they like it or not, because if they don't like it, they won't they won't buy the record. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's, that's how that works out. Yeah. Yeah, and that is actually very different from other from other forms of art where the feedback loop is yeah, a part of it. Yeah, yeah. you're a comedian, you can try the joke out, and then if it flops, you can scrap it. Uh, well, actually, that happens with us because if we don't, if we do the, the, you know, if we do these certain songs, certain songs live will have more of an effect than others, I guess. But we don't really, you know, it's hard to, you, it's not such a direct thing because there's so much going on because you've got the volume of the music behind you as well. Yeah. So, you don't know how it's going down as you as as much as you would if you were a comedian. So, you know, that's that's a different thing. Well, my uh, Gen Z younger daughter is joining me for the upcoming Love and Rocket show in Oakland at the iconic Fox Theater. I don't know if you played at the Fox Theater before, but it's incredible. Um, it didn't take me much convincing when I connected the dots from Love and Rockets to Bauhaus. I gave her a playlist covering your extraordinarily rich catalog. She wanted me to ask specifically how singer-songwriters can perform very personal songs or just songs night after night without losing the emotion and energy on stage. Like, how do you keep that emotion in the performance when you're repeating over uh, a song over and over night after night? Well, in the past, it used to be vodka. <laughs> <laughs> you make you know that saying i make other people um i drink to make other people more interesting that's a that's a funny one yeah but i used to relate to that a lot but i don't drink like anymore like that i'm pretty much clean what it is is it's very simple you don't uh, don't over tour otherwise you will send yourself crazy mm-hmm. uh, with this we're doing basically 16 17 gigs and by the end of that that will be enough I know that in the past I've seen stories of these heavy metal bands that go on the road for two years. But to me, I think they must have very small brains because I couldn't do that. That would send me crazy. But I, I, again, I think that's where the drugs and the alcohol thing kick in because you are repeating yourself. And then, and I've, this has happened to me in the past when we've been on the road for too long where you just you start knocking them back. You start having a few before the gig and then some during the gig, and then it gets to be a total mess. Yeah. And the trick is now, and it's a new way of touring now anyway, I've had. It's much more civilized, where you basically go on the road for two weeks, and then you go off the road for two weeks, and you go back on again. I did that a few years ago with Kevin, with Pop Tone, and it worked out really well. 
because after about 12 gigs in a row, you were just ready for that break and you got the break and then you're all fresh again. Whereas in the old days, some, you know, we'd be on the road for two or three months and it's ridiculous. So this new way of working is much better. So to answer the question is don't do too many gigs. It's that simple. Well, as a poet, collections of poems are typically written over years with each poem written as a standalone piece of art. Finding a way to turn individual poems into a cohesive book happens after the poems are written. When writing lyrics and creating songs, what role does the band you're writing for play a role and the expectations of that band sound in crafting both the lyrics and the songs? And what role does the album that you're driving towards uh, uh, play in creating the overall songs and sound? For me, there's no difference at all. It's a continuation of writing lyrics. Depend, uh, and the uh, chemistry of the band doesn't affect me. It's just mm -hmm. a continual process. It's whatever is I'm feeling inside. Obviously, I'll get the lyrics from the cut-up idea and it'll develop. Maybe subconsciously there's something going on where I might write differently for a different band, but I personally don't think so. I'm just It's a stream of conscious, consciousness that just comes out. All I'm concerned about is getting a good lyric and a good song. And whatever that band is around me, they can sort of take it or leave it once I offer it. But I don't... Uh, when I think about what I'm doing with the Ashes and Diamonds thing right now, you know, with, with Bruce and Paul, uh, it's exactly the same process. Um, whereas I'll either come to the table with a lyric. I mean, there was one particular song called Teenage Robots, you know, great, great, great title. Yeah. And it's, it's all about modern, you know, how our kids are now with their phones and how society is, particularly with young people and how they're, and I was, I was doing this cut up idea. I had several sheets that I was cutting up as they were playing bass and drums. And I was getting a I was getting a rhythm because it's like a rap on this particular song and I was getting that as they were playing in the same room I was just on the carpet on the floor putting all these words together and as they kept jamming it over half an hour I got the lyric finished it was real quick but again I just needed a kick drum and a bass line in order to get the creative juices flowing you know you don't have to have music behind you but it, it helps and in this particular instance but you know my point being that that's how that happened. But if it was two other people playing bass and drums, it would be the same thing. The subject matter just works itself out on whatever you're going through in that at that particular time. That works itself out. You know, and I think that because uh, I've heard, I've read interviews with other bands where they they'll think, oh, this is a song for this band, or I'll hold this aside for solo, and that might go into this point of overthinking things. And your point I, of don't overthink I know, it. I know that Dave works that way. I never work that way. It's just what's in what's in my heart, what's in my head right then. It'll come out, and I don't separate. Oh, that's for this little project. That's for that project. No, I'm just lucky to get anything. Um, whatever, whatever situation I'm in, whoever I'm working with, they'll get that. They'll get that song. I'm so good at putting things in little boxes. Dave and me, I think, are very different. I don't know how he comes up with his stuff. You know, it's all personal. We don't talk about it. No, I just, I'm a completely spontaneous. Again, this is going back to getting rid of the intellect. I, yeah. I get that out of my consciousness as soon as possible. You know, and uh, a bottle of red wine doesn't doesn't harm. Uh, in helping with that process, uh, you know, to this day, that can help. Alcohol is definitely an amplifier, an amplifier uh, it, of emotions, yeah. yes. There's, there's a difference between the one bottle, uh, that that's when you're cooking, 
And then the second bottle, you get up the next day and you're like, what, what was I thinking? It's good. very embarrassing. Thank <laughs> God you have seen what I've written down last night. I'm just an emotional mess. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't do that anymore. Well, many uh, Love and Rocket songs have individual credits for words. Songs including It Could Be Sunshine, Hot Trip to Heaven, and My Drug have shared writing credits. In situations where the writing credit for words is shared, is that because two separate songs have been combined like A Day in the Life by the Beatles, which is probably an extreme example? Or is the writing truly collaborative? Or was there some significant editorial input where it's like, mm, well, that should justify a shared credit or kind of mix of all those? Uh, what it, no, we, in the case of Love and Rockets, it's a case where David or myself have half a song. It's that simple. Uh-huh. Uh, it could be Sunshine is a classic example. He had one, he had the first half, and then I had the other one, and lyrically they work together. Another one is, it, so we've written those very separately, but that, again, is something they happen to work together, but they were two separate songs written separately. Another, a, a great example of that is Haunted When the Minutes Drag. Mm-hmm. That songs, Dave had that first lyric, and then I had that second one. And we literally, okay, let's try joining these two together. I can't remember the exact thing because it was years ago, but they are two very separate songs, very separate ideas that worked as a, they worked together. Oh, so that's exactly like A Day in the Life by the Beatles. Well, they're they're completely separate songs. Yeah. yeah, I I think that we probably work really similar to how Lennon-McCartney, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, that's cool. That probably is what one of the things that I find so compelling about the projects that you've been involved with in Love and Rockets in particular is just there's this blending of very different styles. Like, I mean, David, when I get it, I'm going to be talking to him separately. The, you yeah. know, he has a, there's a, there's, there, you know, his, his solo work is, has a very country bent to it in many cases. I mean, the styles are just completely different and come together yeah. in such an interesting way. Yeah, I used to have a joke about us two. To me, I used to say that, uh, and this is a joke, but I used to say David's, David sounds like he swallowed a dictionary and I sound like I've never seen one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I, I, did, I did go back to, because I've got all the old school CDs and I was going through the, the cases to make sure I knew, because I think I was pretty good at guessing who wrote which songs and then which were blended. Yeah. And then the CDs, uh, the CDs have all that information. The web is not so good at letting you know, actually, anymore. That information has been lost, Oh, surprisingly. Yeah. So in a 1992 interview about your second solo album, Foolish Thing Desire, you talk about how you prefer lyrics that are directed to the point. We've talked about that. The song Dream Machine from the album where the distorted vocals perfectly blend in the, with the layers of electronics and percussion starts with the lyric, I know this little boy that lives inside your head. I know this little boy that lives inside your head, just dreams of the bright blue stars that shine up in the sky, just dreams of your sorrows when you live another lie. And in this case, repetition in poetry can be used as a device in standalone poetry, but it's pretty infrequent and it's very specific. But repetition in song lyrics is much more commonplace. How do you use repetition as a tool when writing lyrics to ensure that in the end you have a great song, not just a great lyric? Well, that just comes with the territory. It's the case of, it's called a chorus. In a lyric, you know, in a, in a song, you need most of the time you know, the verse, the middle eight, and the chorus. Yeah. Um, having said that, there is some great songs where it never changes. Uh, connected by the stereo MCs. Yeah. There's a bass line in that, one note. Doo-doom, doo-doom. It's just one note all the way through. Go, 
is another one from Tones. I could never get Glenn to change key. He would only lock into that bass line. If you check out Go, it never goes anywhere. He would not do that. Because to him, it was corny and it was old fashioned to actually go into to, to something else for a chorus. So I'd have to get a chorus by, and I love it as well, never changing. Uh, there's some deep, deep down Love and Rockets we've been rehearsing. Yeah. When I went to check it out, it's one chord going all the way through. And it's great because of that. But going back to your question, it works itself out. You know, repeating certain lines, like you said in poetry, doesn't necessarily work. But it always works in a lyric because it's called a chorus. Yeah. It's the hook line. So there it is right there. You, you naturally know. When people listen to a song, if it's a pop song, which are my favorites, so I think it takes more talent to write a hit single than anything else. I really do. I've always thought that. It's, you know, I wish we had more. You know, I think most people would wish that if they were honest. You know, you've got the thing, you're okay, you've got the verse, the verse, and then you've got to hit them with the chorus. It's a, it is a strategy that you use because people want that in a song. They want verses and then they want the hook line. They call it the hook line. It's an old cliche, but it works and it's needed. That's what a pop song is and that's what people, they want that. You instinctively want it. So I don't know if this answers your question. Oh, but no, it doesn't. My parents are both classical musicians and they write... Very, my mom's a composer, and but they write very, they play and they write very complex music in terms of the structures and the forms. And yet, and we get in debates over this where I go, just because a pop song isn't, doesn't appear complicated, does not make it easy. And I think Automatic's a great example where it's incredibly sparse and simple, or Kraftwerk yeah. or Cabaret Voltaire. Like there's like just, there's, yeah. it can be very simple, and, and yet, to get that balance just right, everything's exposed. So if something's out of place, it's much more visible. So yeah, I agree with what you said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, simple is best. Uh, I don't. I don't know what else to say. Um, it just really appeals to me. Um, but then there are people out there that they will listen to Yes and Genesis like, from way back. I, I can't listen to that stuff. Mm -hmm. It's just musicianship, but it's doesn't say anything. It's boring and it just seems to be ego wanking on how fast you and how many scales you know on a guitar or whatever and that is a classic example to me of where the intellect has taken over and it just reminds me of people the people that you get at parties that are in the kitchen talking about politics when everybody else is having a good time in the living room they're they're stuck talking about politics in the kitchen and they're usually the ones that like yes and genesis i'm going back now to when i was a kid that was always the case yeah Get the people that are arguing about politics in the kitchen, the boring ones, listening to that music. And then the fun people would be listening to um, Roxy Music and David Bowie and having fun. <laughs> well, other, other songwriters have interviewed, have interviewed a couple and poets who have adapted poems for musicians talk about needing to make the word choices that will work when being sung. So when editing lyrics into a song, do you think consciously about the singability of the words and your range or the way it hits uh, and how that influences what you write? Yeah, absolutely. It has to flow off the page. It has to flow and it has to sort of not necessarily rhyme, but it has to work with the vocal melody and the music. Again, that is you. it's often the case where you'll change lines because they don't rhyme or they don't flow off the tongue as they should. Even though the line in itself might be great, 
it, it often needs to get changed, altered in order to fit in the context of, of, a, of a song instead of it standing on its own as a piece of poetry. That is a different thing. Yeah. With the song, it has to flow off the tongue in a certain way. As in poetry on its own, I have no um, connection with that. I don't do that. I only write lyrics for songs. I don't do uh, poetry on its own. I, I've never really connected with that mm -hmm. at all. It doesn't connect with me, a, a lyric, as in a poem, unless it's connected to music. That's me personally. Yeah. No, but I think that uh, a, a recent poet, very accomplished poet, says that you know music and poem poetry is totally interconnected, and the best poetry doesn't lose sight of that. And that poetry that loses sight of the fact that it was originally a lyric art um, is not the best poetry. So I, I, uh, I, I think. I, don't know, I can't comment because I, yeah. you know, I remember when I was a kid, they asked us to bring some poetry to school, and straight away I just picked um, uh, Mark Boland, T Rex, mm -hmm. and you know um, songs like um, Ballrooms of Mars, beautiful lyrics. It's one of my favorite ever songs, you know, and the lyric on that, you can look at it and really appreciate it as a poem, but I can't help thinking that I'm doing that more because I associate it with the music that, that it surround that, that goes with it. So then when I've got the memory of the music, so it makes it that much more appealing for me. Yeah. Now, but I know other people that get off on just the sound of words in a poem. They're like, that's all I need. This is just something else, and it, that's not the case for me. I need it to be connected to uh, a melody. So finally, uh, the longevity of your music career and the really the, the satellites around you with the bands you've been in and coming in and out with the same people and different people is, I mean, it's remarkable because so many musicians that aspire, artists of all kind that just aspire to make a career out of that passion struggle to do so. It's really, really hard. What, what are some key things you've learned along the way to achieve that longevity? Patience with other people, um, trying to see the big picture, not just your point of view, I think is really important. Um, something that I remember Keith Richards saying also very important is to uh, have a control over your ego. Because I've, I've worked with people in the past where uh, if you, their ego is so big that they won't allow anybody else into their view of what a certain thing should be. And then all the doors shut. You have to be open if you're working in the context of a band, if you don't get your ego in check. I think that's why a lot of you know, bands split up because of that. Yeah. That's a, the real reason. And I get it. It's part of it. You know, there's obviously there's going to be personality clashes as well as time goes on. But, um, yeah, uh, uh, to, to have um, patience with other people and to see the big picture rather than just your point of view is essential. Otherwise, you'll have tunnel vision. And if nobody else can knock on the doors of your idea and, and add something, then the whole thing will freeze and it disintegrates. I'm now going to pass the mic over to Daniel to share lyrics from an upcoming project. Well, I got a couple of things here, but I, there's one. Um, well, I got a couple. So this one is um, again. Obviously, this is all a song that's all done, and it's a it's a mix of of how uh, life in L.A. Hollywood in particular, and the sort of the um, 
the light, you know, the yes and the no about the whole thing, the um, the yin and yang of, you know, loving and hating L.A. and also the loving and hating of Bauhaus. There are two, two sort of separate um, things going on here, where there's a connection between Hollywood and also commenting on the um, the highs and the lows of, of Bauhaus, you know. That's what... So I'm just going to read it out. Um, is that good? That's perfect, yeah. Okay, so, oh, and the other thing is, this was inspired from where Kevin lives, because he lived where Kevin's house is, he overlooks Los Angeles, and it looks like a giant spaceship from where he's, he's lived there forever, for a long, long time. And I always remember being up there at night, and you just see the whole of L.A. glistening in the darkness, mm-hmm. like something. So this is an example of, you know, using the cut-up idea and then use, and how it forms itself into a song using, you know, looking over the balcony at Kevin's house and seeing the the, the, the big starship Los Angeles there mixed in with my emotion, you know, my different emotions about Bauhaus, you know, the band and uh, commenting on, on Hollywood, you know, which is, which again has turned into this song. So anyway, it's um, Hollywood has landed. Everyone, everyone has gone home. You're in the backyard looking up at the crystal ship times two that's that's hollywood down there 40 years of madness 40 years of strain 40 years of sadness 40 years who's to blame 40 years of good luck 40 years of pain 40 years of this heaven 40 years of that hell hollywood has landed everyone has gone home you're looking up at the crystal ship hollywood and loving it and loving it and loving it Oh, beautiful. I'm, I'm excited to, I'm starting to, in my mind, as you're, we were talking about, you can't separate the music from the poetry. I'm starting to uh, yeah. try to anticipate what the music will be. Yeah. It's the highs and the lows of the band and of Hollywood in particular and living there, you know, because I lived here for several years. Uh, so they're mixed in with the crystal ship being Hollywood, you know, so that's how the, and then I got another one here as a short one. It's called the A-listers, all about the hot, you know, the A-listers, the uh, actors, mainly the actors and actresses and how life is for them, according to the National Enquirer (laughs) (laughs) and People magazine and the whole gossip thing, right, with L.A. So the A-listers made you look, made you smile, made you look, made you smile, stars spot stars. Double takes and double dates. The A-listers. The A-listers. News in a flash. Big-headed babe. Diva demands diamonds. Diva demands diamonds. Tears for fears. Scary. I've got one other little line there. Mixing business with pleasure. Mixing business with pleasure, the A-listers. So for shorter lyrics, how does that change the way you approach the song versus uh, a much longer lyric that... um... It's simply the fact that sometimes, I mean, with this one, the A-listers, it's like a dub reggae song. Mm -hmm. Although the lyric is relatively short, the song is quite, is substantially long. So there's no rules, basically. Yeah. There are rules on that. 
you can have uh it's funny because with go you know the turns on sales on go people people perceive that as pretty much an instrumental with just the yeah yeah yahs there's actually three or four verses of lyric on that right yeah but people see it really as an instrumental with just yeah yeah go but there's more words in that than most songs that i've written it's funny yeah uh, people perception on that stuff but um yeah this one the a-list is is a, is a lot it, it's not a short song and yet i got another one which is a rap which is only two and a half three minutes long which again has got a lot of words but it's all boom 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 so there's no rules um that's the wonderful thing about uh music uh you can even there's there's no rules really three years ago susie and the banshees were in the studio they were working with one of these guys who was classically trained no offense to your parents he was classically <laughs> trained and he had his rules on what goes with what and they were playing these two different notes the bass was playing something that didn't technically was not technically supposed to be played with the guitar so this guy who was closed-minded said no no you can't play those two together and he says yeah we're playing them together he said yeah but you can't it doesn't work uh it's working we're doing it right and they kicked him out his mind was closed you know you got to be the more open-minded you are the freer you are and i mean classic example look at the beatles in the psychedelic mm -hmm. letting go no it's like with poetry that's why i love writing poetry because there are rules if you choose to use them, but there are no rules that you have to use and and you can do anything you want. I, I love that, that freedom. Yeah. Things are cool and you connect at certain times. At other times, it can be the case where people aren't ready for X, Y, and Z. Give it 20 years or 20 minutes or 20 days and then suddenly, oh, that does work after all. So again, no rules. It depends when you're born. Absolutely. You know, born in the 60s, 70s, whether you're born in the 1870s, etc., etc. Can you imagine uh, Beethoven's time coming up with Bebopalula, She's My Baby? I mean, I, I often think about things like that, where what would they make of such a thing? That is an interesting one. What would they make of Bebopalula, She's My right. Baby? <laughs> and then they, we call it music, and it's only got one chord. And you, you, you play that to somebody in the 1800s. I mean, I wonder. No, I definitely what? think there were periods of time where it's almost like people were paid by the notes, just like uh, in uh, literally um, yeah. there were right. time periods where they wrote novels as serials and they were published every week. So the more they wrote, the more they got paid. So Charles Dickens was kind of writing for the writing for the for getting paid for each word. Yeah, there you go. Imagine like in the 1960s, if you played a hot trip to heaven. Right. Or, now, let's say in the forties, Glenn Miller time, and then you you had you could go into you know time travel, go into the future, and put on like the Orb or Orbital or something. Or Knights of Rev. There's another or, example. Super simple. Or, yeah. Or, um, or the, the Velvet Underground. Yeah. That on to somebody in the 1940s, they think you were in a you should be in a mental asylum. <laughs> in fact, in the 1960s. That's if you like Iggy and the Stooges back in the 60s, only loonies, nutcases would be, and people right on the fringe of society would be into Iggy and the Stooges, remember? Yeah. I mean, I'm a, not that old, nor are you, but I'm saying I read about that, that, in, you know, Iggy and the Stooges back then, 
it was all peace and love and everything. And Iggy and the Stooges is like, what? That's not music. It's insanity. And the way, and now it sounds, it, it, we connect. Well, it's like I saw the very final, theoretically very final, Skinny Puppy show last night. I'm up in uh, Seattle for that. And, and um, y- yeah, I mean, I, I bet you, I know there's lots of people who say, that's not even music, you know? It, it doesn't have a traditional chorus, verse. It doesn't well, have any of those structures. Bullshit. Yeah. Um, say that about rap. Totally, oh, yeah. It's actually music. Yes, it is. That you can hear sounds. It's music. It's not just a vocal. Totally, yeah. Yeah. So that's, cla- that, that, you know, this is something that keeps coming up in this conversation. It's, you know, being narrow-minded and, and not being narrow-minded is what it's all about. Yes, yeah, it's know, about creating people. creating art, and don't as soon as you put too many constraints, then you've just closed you know, off. Don't be a snob about it. Yeah, the big big thing. I've always disliked that whole elite, uh, what they call alternative rock mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, if you like the Velvet Underground, whatever, you can't like Britney Spears. You know, like Britney Spears, that song, Toxic. Brilliant pop music. Brilliant pop song. Absolutely. Yeah. First, you know, and why not? But there's people out there a lot. They have this horrible, it's been going on for years, that alternative rock crowd, whereas they're not open to pop hits. And as I said before, I think it takes more talent to write a hit pop song than probably anything else. I would say that a lot of those people that claim they're not, they don't like it, are secretly liking it. They can't do it. That's why. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think they can't do it. Yeah. I know Lou Reed said that he stumbled across Walk on the Wild Side. It was a, an accident, and actually, So Alive was an accident for us. I mean, it was just a magic day, magic, just one of those moments. I really enjoy talking to you. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing Love and Rockets live for the first time in quite a long time. I'm thrilled. Yeah. Wow. Let's see how it goes. Fingers crossed. Yes. Here we go again. Yes. One last blast. (laughs) All right. Love talking to you. Okay. See ya. Bye. The Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch. Subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at Fewless Wings. <laughs>